Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. At Real Vision, we're closing the doors. But not how you might think. You see, this autumn we're launching the new Real Vision, a platform built around the universal truth that knowledge times tools times network equals success, your success. It's the biggest transformation in our history and brings together everything you need in your journey from information to knowledge to wisdom, all in one place. That's incredible AI, charting tools, networking, economic data, watch lists, notes, and a whole ton more. We start rolling out to our current members at the end of August. And from August the 15th, we're closing the doors to any new members while we focus on that. But you do have one final chance to get in that door. Until August the 15th, you can level up for a whole quarter of Real Vision just for the price of $20.14. When you go to realvision.com forward slash last chance, you'll see why we chose that price in particular. It's something about Real Vision of old. You'll get to experience the new platform before the general public with no obligation to stay after that three months and a price that works out for like $6 a month. It's what you call a no-brainer. Anyway, I hope to see you on Real Vision. It's an incredible community and my God, this new platform is going to be extraordinary and will change as many lives as possible. That's realvision.com forward slash last chance. EJ Antony, PhD, public finance economist at the Heritage Foundation. Welcome to Real Vision. Ash, thank you for having me. EJ, it's great to have you here today of all days. Let's just start at the top of the show, give a little bit of context to what's happened right now. We just got 25 basis points from the Fed. It was basically baked in if you looked at the futures markets, I think about 97% chance of this happening. 525 to 550 highest Fed funds rate in 22 years since 2001. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, this was pretty much baked in. The market was really expecting this one, uh, especially after the last meeting where Powell multiple times slipped up between saying this was just a pause or it wasn't a pause, whatever the case may be, right? And I maintain that what the Fed is really doing here is trying to institute one-eighth of a percentage point rate increases so that whereas before they did 75 basis points, then 50, then 25, now they're trying to do essentially 12.5. But because they have to move in quarter percentage point increases, the way you do that is by inserting pauses between those quarter point increases. Yeah, we should say in July, they held steady first time in 10 months uh, that they have not hiked. Right, absolutely. And, you know, un unfortunately, when you look at things like the forward guidance from the Fed, it has become more or less useless, right? Let's not forget Powell is the same person who promised that the 75 basis point hike was off the table, and then he promptly gave us four in a row. So, unfortunately, the, the markets really, uh, I, I think, don't have a whole lot um, in terms of when they look into the crystal ball and try to figure out what the Fed is going to do. And so... You know, to a certain extent, did they did they just guess correctly? Absolutely. But we had a lot of indicators as to what the Fed was going to do. Again, when you look at the slip-ups by Jerome Powell from the last meeting, where he seemed to waffle back and forth uh, and, and essentially catch himself and try to correct himself as, as, as if he was trying not to give forward guidance to the markets. Right. I should say we're here live at 2.30 p.m., about 30 minutes after the Fed hike decision. We're doing the news flow portion of this. This is what you're gonna hear on other cable networks. Here's what's gonna make this show so different and so special. So EJ and I ran into each other at a dinner uh, a few months ago. We started talking and I was just struck EJ by how deep and comprehensive your view of what's happening at the Fed is. You know, what you're hearing right now on other cable news networks uh, that are covering this story is, you know, the immediate context, what's been happening uh, the last 90 days, what's going to happen the next 90 days. EJ, you've been thinking about this in a deep, 
comprehensive format, thinking about what's happening in the bigger, broader context with monetary policy, with fiscal policy, and how it intersects with the news flow that we're talking about here today. EJ, give us the big picture. What's the thesis? How do you see these markets? How do you see these broader macroeconomic conditions? Well, un unfortunately, when it comes to our, our broader macroeconomic conditions, taking that last point first, we don't really have a whole lot of good news there, unfortunately. You know, the Fed has really uh, outbacked the nation and really itself into a corner. And the only way out, I, I think, is going to be pain. And it sounds kind of like a, a forecast from Clubber Lang, but, but that's just the unfortunate reality. You know, you, you can't square the circle of the Fed creating literally trillions upon trillions of dollars for government to spend and not expect any kind of, of negative consequences with that. And so we are, we are seeing that right now where the American people essentially are, are having to, to eat the rotten fruit from the tree, from the tree of, of government overspending. Uh, you know, that really began, by the way, not with this administration uh, and not even with the Trump administration, but years ago, it, it really began uh, with, with the George W. Bush administration and the bailouts uh, from the global financial crisis. Now, the Obama administration continued that. Uh, Trump had his own bailouts in terms of, of COVID. And then Biden has just been bailing out essentially anything and everything, more or less, uh, both in terms of, of the fiscal side and also the monetary side. And actually, this, this might be a, a, a good time to bring up uh, the chart on um, the assets that the Federal Reserve, essentially uh, the Fed's balance sheet. Oftentimes we hear about you know, the Fed's balance sheet, and, and that's kind of uh, really um, ethereal, right? People don't understand what does that mean. We have to understand the Fed itself is a unique financial institution in that it has a magical bank account. And I, I honestly don't mean that flippantly. Like I'm not trying to, to be facetious here or anything. It, it truly is magical. It is a checking account with a perpetual zero balance. When the Fed buys something, it writes a check and creates the money out of nothing. And likewise, when it sells something, the reverse happens. The money is completely extinguished. So what, what does that look like in practice? Well, Ash, imagine that I'm the Fed and, and you're a bank and, and you have a, a bond. And I can say, listen, I will buy that bond from you. I hand you a wad of cash and you hand me that bond. Now, where did the cash come from that I just gave you? Well, I created it because I'm the Fed and, and I've been granted the authority to do that by Congress. Uh, however, what happens in the reverse case? If I say to you, hey, listen, can I buy a bond from you? Uh, or excuse me, reverse that, I'm sorry, reverse that. You wanna buy the bond from me. The, the exact opposite happens. So you give me the cash, I give you the bond, and what's the result? The cash as it comes back to me is extinguished, it goes away. And so you can see over time, uh, the Fed's balance sheet has varied wildly as it buys and sells assets. That again, that the first really, really big change in modern history happened uh, when the Fed began it, its quantitative easing programs, what, what we call QE. Right. And, and so as a result of that, the balance sheet just absolutely exploded. And that has to go back to that chart if we could. Absolutely. Uh, and so we can take a look at it and really explain this. You know, one of the challenges uh, with dealing with macroeconomics is the numbers are just enormous. Uh, when you talk about $800 billion uh, during the 2000 uh, time period, people say, well, that's still a big number. But and how do you distinguish between 800 billion and, you know, the 8 trillion or so that we're at right now? But this chart really does tell a story because you can see that parabolic rise uh, on the chart. And by the way, I especially like the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that you have this marked out with call out so you can actually see what was happening during those time periods. Uh, by the way, anyone can see this chart. This is available on the St. Louis Fed Fred database. The name of the series is WALCL. This is total assets, uh, less eliminations from consolidations. Now that we've got that chart up, I've set it up. I've set the table a bit, so to speak. EJ, walk us through what we're looking at and why it's so significant. Well, you, you can see when the bailouts first begin in, in the wake of the global financial crisis, you actually have a doubling of the balance sheet. In other words, the Fed has a, a certain amount of, of money in circulation, if you want to think of it that way, a monetary base on which the banking system can pyramid loans, which expands the money supply. What the Fed essentially did was double that monetary base. 
and then proceeded to continue increasing it with various forms of, of the same quantitative easing. Again, that is buying of assets, uh, these bonds, these different securities, whether they were government bonds or mortgage-backed securities. And the result of that was to continue flooding money into the system. Now, by the time we get to the, the third round of, of quantitative easing, uh, the Fed begins to realize that this can't go on forever, and they're running into two problems. Number one is the fact that they're getting very, very fearful of inflation. And number two is that they're realizing that the interest on reserves is going to become uh, essentially unaffordable. Now, what the heck is, is interest on reserves? Well, what the Fed does is it actually requires banks who are within the Federal Reserve System, which is essentially all banking institutions in the United States, it requires them to keep a portion of their deposits, more or less, with the Fed. And so those are not available for lending. It is essentially not available for use. It is to be used by the Fed in the case of emergencies. That, that's the theory, at least. What the Fed did, though, in the wake of the global financial crisis was create a trillion dollars for the government to spend, but then it had a problem. What happens after the government spends that trillion dollars? Well, the government's going to spend it on goods and services in the real economy, right? That's where you get that crowding out effect where uh, government activity supplants private activity. And the this result- is such an important point. Can you just elaborate a bit on it? Because it's so critical, I think, to your broader thesis. Ab absolutely. So the, what the Fed essentially has to do here is write a check for the treasury because the treasury doesn't have the money itself, right? The treasury wants to borrow money, but where is it going to get the money from? The public literally does not have enough money to lend it. And so the treasury can borrow, but they would have to do it at prohibitively high interest rates, right? We, we forget sometimes that the loanable funds market where we go to lend money and also where we go to borrow money uh, has its own price. And that price is the interest rate. And so if you want more loanable funds, you're increasing the demand for loanable funds, the only way you can get a commensurate increase in supply is by increasing that interest rate. And so the treasury at auction, when it sells its securities, would need to offer its bonds, its bills, its notes, et cetera, at higher and higher and higher yields in order to attract more and more supply to the loanable funds market. In other words, they'd have to get people to forestall spending today and save their money and give that give those savings to the treasury. But you were in the wake of the global financial crisis, you were talking about the treasury borrowing again, just prohibitively expensive amounts of money. Right. And so the Fed steps in, and in in the name of promoting full employment, essentially, the Fed decides to start gobbling up those uh, U.S. treasuries from existing bondholders. And so, Ash, imagine you are one of those people who hold those bonds, and I, as the Fed, come to you and I say, look, I'll give you a wad of cash, and you give me that bond that you hold right now. And you say, sure, that sounds great. So now I have the bond, you have the cash that I literally just created out of nothing, and now with that cash, what can you do? Well, you can go out and spend it, or you can save it again and invest it, and you can invest it in the exact same type of government securities. And that's precisely what happened. But we, we arrive back at that problem of now the, the government has all of this money that they're going to spend, and they're going to spend it on real goods and services, and that's going to have two effects. One, it's, it's obviously crowding out private activity because everything that the government spends and buys is something that the private economy can't, can't buy, can't acquire, and can't use for productive economic activity. But the other big problem is the fact that all of that money is going to work its way into the banking system. So the government is going to spend a dollar, that dollar is gonna to go to whoever sold the government, whatever they wanted, and that now that person can put that dollar on deposit at a bank, where it can then be lent out, and through the miracle of fractional reserve banking, that expands the money supply. And so previously with a, a reserve ratio of 10%, meaning for every dollar I put on deposit at the bank, the bank has to keep 10 cents in reserve and can lend out the other 90. You essentially had a situation where the Fed creates $1 for the government to spend, but the banking system multiplies that and you get a total increase of $10 to the money supply. So Bernanke comes up with this idea of, Bernanke, former, former Fed Chair Bernanke, 
comes up with this idea of what if we could pay banks not to lend out that money? Right. So in, instead of simply increasing the reserve ratio, which would reduce the money supply everywhere and cause interest rates to go up everywhere, what if we could pay banks not to lend that money back out? We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I know this is very technical detail uh, for a lot of people, uh, but to me, what it sounds like is when you go to the doctor and you tell him that you have a side effect from the medication that he prescribed, and he said, don't worry about it, we're going to give you another medication to treat the side effect. Oh, oh absolutely, absolutely. And, and it's, it's a great analogy because imagine if the doctor has an incentive not to cure you from the original ailment. And, that, and that's exactly the situation in which the Fed finds itself where they still want to create the money for government to spend, right? But they don't want the negative side effect of the inflation. So instead of fixing the actual problem, which is just the government spending too much money, they are papering over that problem. And what the interest on reserves initially allowed to happen was for them to create the money for the government to spend, essentially allow interest rates to rise in the private sector, but keep the interest rate on government borrowing artificially low. And, and we found this in, in what was called ZERP or zero interest rate policy, right. where the Fed said we are going to, from essentially from now on going forward, have this zero interest rate that we're going to try to maintain. And it, it has been fraught with problems ever since. It has caused all kinds of deleterious effects within the private marketplace. And it has caused a repeated series of near meltdowns in the financial system, which required immediate intervention by the Federal Reserve in order to stave off. But, but that the reason this is such an important period in history to understand, even though it, it happened more than a decade ago, is because right. it sets the stage for what is happening now. Now, do we have a chart for interest on excess reserves, the IOER chart? Do we have that? Uh, we, we have one with, with that uh, and the reverse repurchase agreements as well, yep. the two of them together. So, so uh, let's talk through that as well, because it's another important uh, piece of the functional mechanics for how this system works and how it generates some of the issues that we see creeping into the economy right now. Sure, sure. So I, I think one of the things that's important to understand here is the way we often talk about the Federal Reserve and even the language that Fed officials uses is actually technically incorrect. For example, with with today's interest rate hike, the Fed actually doesn't set the particular interest rate that gets that gets all of the headlines. It's it's what's called the federal funds rate. And that's basically just the, the rate that one bank will charge another for an overnight loan or some kind of short-term uh, loan. And so what the Fed does is they target a range, right, between 5.25 and 5.5% uh, is, is going to be the, the new rate going forward. And right. the way they target that, the way they try to influence banks to make them charge a higher or a lower rate uh, is by increasing or decreasing the loanable funds available within the banking system. Now, how on earth do they do that? Through that mechanism we described earlier, where they can buy or sell securities. And by doing that, they will increase or decrease the amount of money available for banks to lend to one another. So as that rate starts dropping, for example, the Fed realizes there's not enough demand given the supply of loanable funds. And so we're going to affect one of those two factors, either the, the, the supply or the demand in order to try the, to increase the rate and bring it back up uh, to where we want it to be. So what normally happens is they use what's called open market operations, which is again, where they buy or sell those government bonds, or sometimes it's private things like mortgage-backed securities. Right. But they can also use something in the case where they need a really quick hit called reverse repurchase agreements and repurchase agreements. Now, what on earth is that? It works just like open market operations, except they are temporary. These are literally just overnight operations. 
And so in the case of repurchase agreements, what you can do is infuse a large amount of liquidity very, very quickly, essentially instantaneously into the market if it's necessary. We saw this, for example, uh, when, when COVID first occurred and the Fed literally couldn't buy bonds fast enough. So repeatedly in overnight operations, they used repurchase agreements to do that. In the case of reverse repurchase agreements, we have the exact opposite happen. It's a way for the Fed to soak up liquidity. What, what a reverse repurchase agreement essentially does is it allows the Fed to borrow money in the private economy. Now, why on earth would the Fed borrow money, right? They, they literally have a printing press. They can create their own money. The reason they are borrowing money is because it's going to change the amount of demand for loanable funds. In other words, this actually provides a floor for interest rates. It prevents the interest rate from falling too low. And that right. has two, there's two very, very important factors that essentially work exactly the same like interest on reserves. Number one, it allows them to have a larger than normal supply of loanable funds out there, which keeps down the interest rate for government borrowing, but it also increases the interest rate for the private sector. So it seems like the Fed has squared the circle here, right? They have figured out a way to provide more money for the government to borrow without actually causing inflation and causing interest rates to go up. Because again, just like interest on reserves, every dollar we're soaking up in liquidity from reverse repurchase agreements is a dollar the banking system doesn't have available to lend out, which means it can't multiply. And it's very interesting when you look at the chart of the reverse repurchase agreements, you can see back in March of last year, the Fed realized, uh, excuse me, March of 21, actually, not last year, more than two years ago, the Fed realized that inflation was becoming a problem and that they needed to intervene. And they did so with reverse repurchase agreements, except here's the big problem. They are paying interest because it's a loan, just like interest on reserves is costing them money. So too are the reverse repurchase agreements, because yeah. remember the Fed is borrowing the money from the private sector and they're paying literally over $700 million a day in order to keep both of these operations going. It actually peaked uh, about a month or two ago at over $800 million. Now, some operations by the Treasury recently are helping to bring that down, which we can get into as well. But the fact remains that the Fed is literally having to create money out of nothing, in other words, fuel inflation, uh, in order to try to bring down inflation by sterilizing all of this money. Yeah, and you can see that I'm looking at the other chart right now. I'm looking at the reverse uh, repurchase agreement weekly average chart, and you can see it shooting up. This is a line chart, not a bar, uh, not a stacked line chart. You can see it just shooting up like a hockey stick there exactly at the time period that you're talking about. I think it's also important for people to understand, and I think this is so great, EJ, because we're talking about the actual how this stuff functions behind the scenes, which is something that most viewers, most listeners just don't get a chance to hear or have explained. Uh, this idea that essentially reverse repo agreements are just the opposite side of the repo trade. It's literally just the reverse position from a counterparty perspective. Right, exactly. This is just a way for the Fed to soak up liquidity as opposed to repurchase agreements where the Fed is going to inject liquidity. And usually what you see is these things can spike and, and that's perfectly normal because you will have market conditions changing faster than the Fed can conduct its open market operations. And, and that's for, for literally decades has been considered normal operating procedure, except you always see these things die down because as soon as those spike, whether it's repurchase or reverse repurchase, agreements, as soon as they spike the next day, the, the New York Fed's trading desk immediately begins to step up their operations. But what have we seen with reverse repurchase agreements? The exact opposite of that, because they know that if they actually bring the money supply down to where it needs to be, it's going to cause interest rates for a treasury to go through the roof. They are already causing uh, the deficit to explode you know, we may, before this year is out, we may end up spending a trillion dollars or nearly there, that much on interest on the national debt. I mean, we are, we are very, very quickly getting to that point of being prohibitively expensive. Yeah. And, and that gets into the, the question of the, what is the significance of all of this? Why does it matter? Why is it so frightening in your view? I essentially hear three different categories. Number one, 
uh, of course, is that it's inflationary. Number two is that it crowds out private market activity, it crowds out transactions that otherwise would be economically viable for businesses and firms to do here in the United States, which suppresses economic activity. And the third is the impact that it has on the long-term viability of federal, state, and local debt as those rates ultimately rise and we see them becoming more costly for government to bear. Right, absolutely. And, and I think that interest rate component is so incredibly important. You know, that, that the ZERP, the zero interest rate policy had just so many terrible effects on the investment environment here in the United States, not the least of which was that it forced investors to chase yield. And so you had, particularly in, in the banking community, right, you were, you were seeing institutions routinely take on more and more risk, but then they balanced that risk with government securities, uh, not only from a regulatory standpoint, because they are required to hold a certain percentage of those for all kinds of, of investments, but also because it literally was just an offset when the Fed does things like their, their stress testing of those financial institutions. Except the problem is that you have exposed the bank now to two different types of risks. One is simply default risk with all of those, uh, the, those higher yields that they were chasing. That comes along with the higher default chance. But now you also have interest rate risk, which reared its ugly head most recently in March when we had SVB collapse, Signature Bank, and, and a few other regionals. Uh, but we also had it back in, in 2019 with the taper tantrum. You know, one of the things that people, uh, most people I think missed was the Federal Reserve literally bailing out uh, institutions, mostly hedge funds, to the tune of half a trillion dollars in the fall of 2019. Why? Because basically, uh, shortly after Trump takes office and, and he appoints Powell, Powell gets to the Fed and, believe it or not, starts to do the right thing. He begins to taper off the balance sheet. And so that's where in that first chart, after we've seen a series of spikes from quantitative easing and then a flatlining, after that, it begins to taper off. And once we get to the fall of 2019, we get to some very, very catastrophic events, again, mostly among hedge funds, where people who have been trying to perform interest rate arbitrage get caught on the wrong side of that trade. And instead of allowing the bubble to burst and the, and the fallout to, to clear out the dead wood in the investment community, the Fed stepped in and literally created $500 billion in order to bail those institutions out. And they undid much of the tapering that had taken place over the previous two years. And we've seen now the, the same thing with the bank term funding program that happened uh, back in March, where the Fed literally, again, created hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out these institutions. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. So what's your take on uh, the reversal of the uh, quantitative easing and so then the reversal of the reversal going from easing, uh, the, what, what was the your perspective on what happened there? Is it uh, that uh, Chair Powell comes in with the best of intentions, uh, he goes in to do the right thing, and then you find out that there are just these cracks in the system uh, that won't allow you fundamentally to do it because of the, the structural challenges that have been put in place because of, you know, over a decade at that point, I guess. Uh, of quantitative easing, and you just you find out that if you do that, if you if you kind of you know you take your finger out of the dam, it breaks. Right, exactly. I think Powell just failed to appreciate how bad the problems from ZERP truly are, and so when when he gets to the Fed, he decides we need to begin normalizing operations, and they begin to do that. And the problem is that the the high interest rates. You know, there's this big misnomer that that we really should address that high interest rates break things in the financial world. Nothing could be further from the truth. High interest rates expose what the low interest rates broke. The low interest rates do things like create interest rate risk. They, they incentivize malinvestment. And then those things rear their ugly head when interest rates begin to rise. 
and people realize what the real cost of money is, what the, what the real value of time is. And as a result of that, Powell figured out, or Powell realized, I guess, um, that it wasn't worth the pain. And so he decided to once again put off the pain in the same way that the Fed did repeatedly, whether it was quantitative easing one, two, three. Talk a little bit about the natural rate of interest, R star, how that gets calculated and how that changes over time. Well, it's essentially left up to, to the free market, to private individuals. Um, you know, there, there's an interesting treatise, and I, I, the psychologist's name is, is eluding me at the moment, um, but he essentially argued that uh, as, as societies become more and more hedonistic, they value the present more and the future less. And his, his observation was that uh, essentially that, that natural rate of interest is going to change as culture changes. And so it was not so much a factor of things like technological advancement uh, for him, so much as it was simply a, a purely cultural and, and even, even somewhat of a religious phenomenon. I, I think he, he would go so far as to at least insinuate that to be the case as well. And, and so you don't see a, a constant R star, let's say, you don't see a, a constant natural rate of interest over time. It, it's a product of of, of as everything is with economics, right? It's a product of supply and demand and the factors that create and, and compose those supply and demand curves are going to change over time. So we've talked a little bit about the, the how, the functional mechanics for how this stuff happens. We've talked about some of the risks that are building in the system in your view. Uh, what is the likely forward path, the likely scenario? Do you have a sense of when or if some of these, some of these challenges uh, that you've just discussed here are going to potentially manifest themselves in markets. Lots of investors, of course, are curious about the market-based implications for what's happening uh, in the economy and with the central bank. Sure, it's, it's a great question, Ash. You know, one of the really interesting things, uh, there's been a lot of attention right now uh, on the banking sector about how so many banks are, are, uh, are holding these massive mark-to-market losses on their balance sheet. In other words, they have assets that if they can hold them till maturity, there's very little default risk and they'll get paid. But if they need to sell them before that maturity, if they need to raise liquidity uh, so in, in the meantime, they're going to have to take some very, very big losses because interest rates have risen. And as all of your, of your viewers, I'm sure know, in the bond market, you see prices and, uh, and rates move in, in inverse directions. Uh, the Fed, however, is first and foremost among those who have lost uh, who have lost value. The Fed has about one and a half trillion dollars of losses on its balance sheet. Now, the Fed has the luxury, since it has a printing press, of very rarely ever needing to sell assets before maturity. Most of the the runoff that happens with its balance sheet is simply just allowing things to mature and then and then not replace them. But, right. some of, but some of its balance sheet is actually being sold, and it's being sold at a loss. The bigger loss, though, is coming from these uh, reverse repurchase agreement operations and the interest on reserve policy. And as a result of that, the Fed has racked up a cumulative loss of, of over $80 billion, which is amazing because the Fed normally turns a profit, which it doesn't keep. It turns that profit over to the Treasury in something called remittances. And so if you look at the chart uh, that, that shows those remittances, you see something that doesn't look like the Federal Reserve. It doesn't look like it belongs to the Fed. It looks like it belongs to one of these failed regional banks where the earnings all of a sudden just fall off a cliff. But that's the result of the Fed's failed operations. And again, right. one, of the, one of the ironies here is that the Fed is essentially just creating money to fuel its losses. And it's trying to fight inflation by creating money, which, which is quite paradoxical. And yet that, that is the, the instance in which the Fed currently finds itself. So now going forward, what, what, what on earth does the Fed do? Well, these things can't last forever because if they do, the inflation that the Fed is causing actually gets worse and worse and worse over time. And so the Fed needs to wind these things down. How on earth is it going to do that? Well, it has two options. One, it can bring the supply and demand of loanable funds uh, back, back together, and interest rates will then resemble what they, what they really are. In other words, the, the nominal rate of interest will increasingly resemble the, the real rate, and the result of that is going to be a reduction in inflation. 
The problem is it is going to slam the brakes on the real economy, the private economy, while dramatically increasing the rate of interest that the treasury is paying on its debt. And that is, a, that is an option which the politicians are going to be none too happy about. The alternative is the Fed simply allows inflation to stay at elevated rates for an extended period of time. And we will do what we essentially did during much of the 1970s and even the first couple of years of the 80s, which is to inflate away the real cost of the debt. So none of these things are, are actually good options, but those are the options that, that the Fed is essentially left with at this point. So EJ, how do investors handicap which options they're going to take? I mean, just to play devil's advocate here for a moment, I've been doing this for a long time and I remember covering these markets uh, in 2009, 2010, and I remembered folks who had very serious experience uh, with markets and macroeconomics, particularly folks who had <clears throat> backgrounds uh, in Austrian economics saying, you know, this, this, is, this can't stand, this is voodoo, none of this stuff makes any sense. Uh, everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket. And then you pull up the chart uh, for the NASDAQ composite index starting uh, when QE starts, and it's just, it's just unprecedented uh, mm -hmm. upward uh, price accumulation on that. So I guess the question is, uh, how do you reconcile what's happening uh, in the underlying economy with what's actually happening in markets? How do you sort that out? How do you parse it? And how do you deal with these uh, seeming potential disconnects uh, precisely for the reasons that you enumerated earlier, which is that when you have essentially a magic bank account, uh, you can, at least in nominal terms, uh, have the impact uh, that you want to see on these markets. I mean, you know, we're we're looking at for the year right now, these numbers on, you know, S&P 500 is up about uh, over 19% on the year. Uh, NASDAQ composite up 35 plus percent. NASDAQ 100 up nearly 42% of the year. And we've just passed at the end of the first half. You know, one of the tragedies of ZERP was the fact that it encouraged speculation while disincentivizing uh, investment in, in real assets. And so what we have seen over the age of ZERP is exactly that. We have seen phenomenal stock market returns that just simply have not matched uh, earnings growth, for example, that, that simply have not matched increases in the size of the real economy. And that is all coming to an end now uh, as, as the age of ZERP comes to an end as well. And you're going to see a, a shift away from uh, those speculative ventures and towards an appreciation of real assets. But it's, it's going to be much like, uh, I guess the best way to put it is, is for the investor, let history be your guide. And so you have to ask, during times when the Fed was trying to fight inflation, there were a lot of price pressures in the economy, and we also had essentially stagnant economic growth, what were the assets that did best? And so investors want to hone in on that period of the late 70s and early 80s and say, okay, where are we today? versus during that cycle, right? We just had our 40-year high inflation. It has come down, and now we're moving into the, the stagnant phase. The Fed is belatedly trying to fight the inflation. And so we are, you, you can essentially just map it out and say, where are we today versus back then? What are the assets back then that did well? And that's where you want to plow your money into today. Now, one of the, one of the differences is the fact that today, the the borrowings from the treasury are, are just escalating at, at an absolutely just phenomenal pace. And I, I don't mean that in a good way. That's definitely used in, in the pejorative sense. Uh, but, but you can see borrowings by the treasury have, are, are, at such a, are rising at such an incredible rate right now that it is eclipsed only by COVID. In the first month, I think it was, um, I want to say it was April of 2020, uh, was, was the month when we actually had uh, a, a higher rate of borrowing. But outside of that, there's literally nothing in history that compares to what we saw when the debt ceiling was suspended. And so you have that added complexity as well. Now, go, going back to your question of how on earth does that, does that affect the investor, that puts the Fed in a more difficult position. And the reason is that where is the Fed actually getting, excuse me, where is the Treasury getting this money from that it's borrowing? Well, it is going to have to get it from one of two places, either from the public or from the Fed. Now, right now, the Fed is drawing down the balance sheet. In other words, it is, it is allowing more treasuries to mature and roll off than it is buying. So that's not an option. Uh, at the same time, the Fed is allowing things like reverse repurchase agreements to fall off. Uh, and same thing with, with bank balances. 
And so it doesn't look like the Fed's going to be any help there, which means the Treasury has to get this from the private economy. Now, that's going to do two things. One, it's increasing that demand on the loanable funds market, which is going to drive up rates, increase borrowing costs for the Treasury. But the other added complexity here is the fact that as money is taken out of those things like reverse repurchase agreements, which the Fed was using to sterilize that money, that money is now going to be allowed to multiply in the banking system. In other words, it's going to make the Fed's inflation fight even harder. And so we can expect that these higher rates are going to have to stick along, stick around a lot longer than I think anyone at Treasury or Fed would like them to. But, but that's something that investors need to be aware of, right? Uh, unless the Fed is going to just completely give up the ghost on the inflation fight, throw its hands in the air and say, forget it, we give up, uh, these rates are going to have to stay high. Well, you know, it's really interesting that you should say that, EJ. I'm looking right now, just crossing here, uh, as we're having this conversation live, Chair Powell is speaking. Uh, here's a headline. Powell says Fed can afford to be a little more patient. Monetary policy will likely need to be more restrictive for longer, Powell says. Powell says Fed will determine future increases meeting by meeting. So precisely what you were just saying. Right. But but of course, but of course, he's he's throwing a he, he's he's throwing a bone there to the people who think that the Fed's going to give up on the inflation fight. Right. So, uh, you know, once once again, he's giving himself plenty of wiggle room, uh, in, I think, in, in both directions. Uh, right. But but at, at the end of the day, uh, investors need to decide for themselves, is the Fed going to be more hawkish or or more dovish here? Um, and, and I don't mean in terms of like, are they going to do another quarter percentage point uh, rate increase? Or are they going to leave rates where they are? That, I, that's not what I'm referring to. You, you don't need to, I think, engage in that kind of, of minutia and that kind of guessing game. I just mean, generally speaking, are they going to be okay with continuing 3% inflation? Or are they actually going to try to get it back down to the 2% target? And again, that that um, that choice has to be made with the background of the activity at the Treasury is creating more inflationary pressure, not less. So something that you were touching on earlier that I found really interesting was essentially, uh, it almost sounded like what you were talking about was a sectoral rotation uh, in U.S. equities. You were talking about moving away uh, from the types of uh, very high growth, uh, long duration tech types of stocks that we've seen that have just been obviously sizzling here uh, as a general rule uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. What do you think that looks like? What are the implications for investors and how do you sort of frame out what those categories look like in your mind? Well, I think a lot of that is is already beginning to, to unwind itself, right? We're already seeing a lot of a lot of those effects where these different companies are begin have already begun, I should say, to position themselves, uh, to, to essentially protect themselves from the interest rate risk to which they were so heavily exposed previously. And things like that are, are a huge part of what brought down Silicon Valley Bank, for instance, right? right? You had all of these clients who all of a sudden said, uh-oh, we can't afford to continue rolling over debt at these higher interest rates. And so they needed to withdraw their deposits to immediately begin paying down debt because they couldn't get favorable credit terms anymore. And voila, that's how you get a bank run when 80% of your depositors are doing exactly that, making these massive deposit withdrawals. And so a lot of these businesses are, are finding themselves in a similar situation where they need to pay down debt instead of rolling it over, where they need to forestall capital expenditures uh, instead of taking on additional debt. It's very interesting, Ash, when you look at the different surveys by the regional Federal Reserve banks, almost universally, you're seeing capital expenditures just fall off a cliff. In other words, businesses are not planning to make these large future investments. Instead, they are essentially taking just enough money to maintain uh, uh, current physical capital levels and not buy anything that's unnecessary. A lot of that has to do with, with just how uncertain the, the economic landscape is right now. Uh, but it also speaks to the fact that credit is genuinely becoming tighter. So, so what are the implications? What are the next order, order effects? And what are you looking to happen going forward based on that thesis? Well, there, there's a couple of things to think about here, right? One of which is the fact that businesses who have already gone into this uh, by paying off a lot of debt are in great shape. The problem is that's not a lot of businesses, right? When, when interest rates literally were lower 
then the the, um, the the dividend the dividend return that you could get on a lot of stocks. What did many businesses do? You had major corporations that were better capitalized than some banks, and yet decided to instead of using their huge cash balances, take on debt in order to buy back their own stock. Why? Because they got a better rate of return on the dividends that they paid themselves than the interest that they had to pay to the financial institution from which they borrowed the money. Uh, so there are not a lot of businesses in that position, but those that are, those that were not suckered by those low interest rates are in a great position and, and I think are great investments going forward. So, so what are those opportunities specifically on a, on a sector by sector basis uh, or just more generally, however you think about where those opportunities are? Uh, I think a lot of it has to do, Ash, with, with looking at real assets, so non-speculative investments. Now, one of the, one of the curious things there uh, is that you have a lot of commodities, for example, which are really getting beaten up right now as people are anticipating demand is, is just going to take it, just fall off a cliff, more or less, with, with a global recession. And so those things are, are more so, uh, you, you could say, the, the timing on those is, is much more difficult. The reason being is that if you buy them today, you're very likely buying at, at elevated rates. The problem is that if you ignore them completely, you're also ignoring the fact that inflation is going to cause them to continue to rise over time. Uh, now with, with commodities, obviously you're looking at, at a futures market, you're not looking to take delivery of those things. And so if you want to buy over a longer period of time, you're typically not looking at, at yourself getting directly engaged in those future markets, right? You're looking at different financial instruments that are right. going to do that for you. Uh, but, but again, I, I think the best thing to do is to go back in time and to look at that period, late 70s, early 80s, and find the sectors that did the best in the conditions which so mirror ours today financially. And, and what are some of those sectors and what's the hypothesis that you apply to it? Is it a value investing uh, framework? And, and what were those sectors that overperformed during that period? Well, first, first, I'll take the opposite and say the absolute worst were government bonds, right? And a huge right. reason for that was just because inflation just destroyed the value right. of those bonds. And inflation lasted much longer than people thought it was going to, just like the Fed for so long said, oh, no, inflation's transitory. There's nothing to worry about. No, it wasn't transitory. It looks like it's here for the long haul. Uh, but in terms of things that, that did very well, hard assets, uh, commodities did very well, housing did very well. Now, I understand that, that we have a bit of a housing bubble. That's absolutely the case. You, you can't tell me this is that that is not an asset bubble right now. But at the same time, the Fed has shown over just repeatedly over and over and over again that they are not going to allow these bubbles to pop completely. They, they might allow the pin to be inserted and a decent amount of air to be let out as what happened in 2007, eight and nine. Uh, but thus far, at least with this cycle, the Fed continues to bail things out just like they did in March with the banking sector. And so we can expect, I think, that same thing to happen again and again. So you know, while, it, while it may be the case that, that housing continues to take a hit, it, prices have been coming down the last several months, right? We can anticipate that's going to continue to happen as credit continues to tighten. But in the long haul, it definitely is a good bet. It's also so interesting because the housing market is so highly regionalized. When I talk to friends in Southern California, uh, folks here in New Jersey and Connecticut, I mean, the house that I was born in, my parents' starter house, my mom was a school teacher, my dad was working in construction, $900,000. You look at that and you think, this is just something that's not within the reach uh, of a school teacher and a guy working in construction in 2023. Uh, and, but this is a very sort of regional phenomenon that we see in addition to the broader based uh, rise in those as, an, as a general asset class. It's just such a complicated market uh, and exists at so sort of many different levels of granularity. That's, that's a great point. And, and you always want to be careful, even in the best of sectors, that you don't want to grab the bad apple out of the bunch. And so, for example, right. you, you have a lot of different places. San Francisco is a big one that comes to mind, right? You don't want to, to grab the one bad apple in the bunch. You don't want to reach in and take the invest essentially in the one place where there are so many bad policies at the local and state level uh, right. that essentially are, are creating a, its own little catastrophe. Now, at, at the same time, I, I wouldn't go and invest in Miami right now either 
because that's that of all the major metros in the United States, that probably is the biggest bubble right now. And, and so there's, you know, you have both sides of that trade, right? Where you have areas that are that are greatly depressed right now, but likely to stay that way. And then you have areas that are essentially blown up just way, way too much and will probably come down. It's almost like an inverted barbell. Right, you have the uh, you have the bubblicious stuff, and you have the stuff that looks bad uh, for some of the socio-cultural reasons that are happening locally on the ground. Uh, so you were talking a little bit about the market that you would not want to be in, which is government bonds. Uh, interesting that we saw after that, you know, if you look at the chart there, I mean, we've been in this like forty-year bull market for bonds. Uh, I mean, that the the most durable chart right now in financial markets is the steady march downward until this most recent cycle in the ten-year Treasury yield. I mean, it's just it's literally been my entire life. You couldn't go wrong buying government bonds. Uh, if you started this uh, after the Volcker era, sure. But uh, you know, again, this is this is part of the problem uh, with with Zerp is the fact that these things can't last forever, and when they end, they end catastrophically. And that's right. exactly that's exactly what we're seeing yeah. right now. You you have all these bonds that no one wants to hold, and so everyone is having to sell below par. And and this systemic interest right. rate risk is is finally rearing its ugly head. And I would, I would add to that one point, which is, yes, nothing can last forever, but for people uh, in markets, it feels as though it's lasted forever because it's been their entire careers. I mean, we're talking about uh, folks working on Wall Street who are in their 60s now who have never seen anything but a bull market in government bonds. You know, it's a, Ash, it's a really, really great point. And, and you know, when, when we recall the fact that so many investors, uh, even, even among institutional investors, are very, very young. I'm talking to people who actually are executing these trades, right? Yeah. Have have known nothing but the post-global financial crisis world. Right. And so they essentially have known nothing but a bull market. The, the right. closest thing they ever saw was, was the shakeup that happened uh, again with the taper tantrum towards the end of 2019. But other than that, because I mean, let's be honest, we, we can throw out COVID. That was a freak thing uh, that had nothing to do with the regular business cycle. So once right. you remove that from the mix, you're absolutely right. These people know nothing but a bull market, and this is entirely new to them. And they're beginning to realize that the bull market they have known for essentially their whole life has been has been a tissue fire. Yeah, it's so it's so well said, and you know, and this this idea of how young uh, the folks who are making those allocation decisions are. They're so young, where if their mom or their dad worked on Wall Street and they asked them about it, they've never seen it either. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and but, you know, this this is a really good reminder that tulipomania was a real thing, right? And I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have no idea what tulipomania was, but it, it, it was many, many years ago uh, uh, in, in areas of Europe, mostly in, in uh, the Netherlands, if I remember correctly, where the, the tulip first came into uh, existence and you had all kinds of, of breeders, essentially, of, of tulips, if you want to call them that, where they came up with all these different uh, color combinations. You even had, had people manage to come up with a black tulip, believe it or not. And for some reason, people thought these things were, were good investments. They literally were investing in these flowers and the amount of, of real goods and services paid for these things was astronomical. I mean, we're talking people were trading years worth of a laborer's wages for a flower. And everyone realized eventually that this was silly, and yet they continued to do it because of the greater fool strategy, which basically means that, look, I know this thing isn't worth what it's selling for, but I'm confident I'll be able to sell it to a greater fool tomorrow who will be willing to pay for more for it than I was today. And that worked for a very long time. And then literally overnight, the bottom fell out of the market and the market for tulips just was gone. There were there were literally no buyers. So I want to get to our viewer questions in just a second because we've got some good ones going on. But I want to ask this final question uh, just to get back to the sectors, thinking about what happened in the 1970s, defensive stocks, uh, consumer staples, healthcare, I believe, uh, essentially any place where you could get revenue at a cheaper valuation uh, did much better outperformed. What, what are some of those lessons that you think about as you sort of, you set up this context for a very much what sounds like a 1970s stagflationary environment? Well, th things like energies, utilities, th those are also, I, I think, very good plays in, in this environment going forward as well, in part because they are so able to pass along costs, right? You, you're not talking about a business where if the, if the price goes up, the consumer is able to, to cut back, for example. 
no, I, I still need to use a certain amount of energy. Now, can I do things like adjust my thermostat to reduce how much natural gas I'm using? Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, even things like gasoline, although it's incredibly inelastic in the short term, in the long term, it is, it is pretty elastic in terms of uh, demand. Meaning but, new supply can come back on the market in the longer term as, the, as price rises. Well, that, that, but I can also change my, my behavior over time su surprisingly right. well. Right. Although the average, I think the average age of the, of the American vehicle fleet is something like 11 or 12 years right now. Um, but you, if you give it five years, you figure half of the fleet has turned over. Right. And so one, one of the things that, that we saw, uh, for example, uh, in, in the 2010s was as energy prices went up, people began to switch from, right. from heavier, less fuel-efficient vehicles to lighter, smaller, more fuel-efficient ones. Right. And as a result of that, per person, we, we saw lower gasoline demand. Um, it's, but, it's so interesting that these markets that are essentially, uh, in the short term, uh, very inelastic become longer-term elastic. Uh, you know, you think, well, maybe that Cadillac Escalade is not such a great idea if I'm paying six bucks a gallon for gas. Maybe I'll get the, you know, the Honda Accord hybrid. Right, right, it, it, exactly. But you know, there, there's only so much that you can do that when, when it comes to utilities, when it, when it comes to energy, right? There's only so much that, that I can reduce my energy consumption right. uh, before I get to a point where I would just rather cut back somewhere else, right? So something like uh, a restaurant, for example, uh, where I can choose not to eat out, I can eat at home and save money there. I would rather do that than have to run around shutting all the lights off in my home or, or not turning the lights on at all, let's say. Right. So I, again, I think things like energy and utilities, I would throw those in with some of the other uh, the other things that we would you, you know, consider the consumer staples. Okay, here's a question that comes to us from Dee Gardner. Uh, Dee wants to know, can all central banks do this or just the U.S., essentially asking uh, if the extraordinary power the Federal Reserve has is something that's mirrored by other central banks around the world. The answer to that is no, but to what degree uh, do you think that answer is no? That's a really, really good question. I, I think a lot of it has to do uh, with the fact that the United States dollar is still the reserve currency of the world. Now, that's, you know, that, that's getting a little perilous. Right, we are doing. It, it's as if we're doing our level best to destroy the dollar as the reserve currency of the world right now. But the fact is, it, it it remains so. And one of the things that that has allowed the Fed to do is actually export inflation in, in much the same way that the British did in the interwar period when they foisted the uh, the 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 pound sterling standard. The well, I should say the pound sterling exchange standard on continental Europe. And so as the rest of the world uses dollars, as they use them for settling international trade or for maintaining reserve balances, whatever the case may be, the fact of the matter is that as the Fed reduces the value of the dollar by creating more of it, it is reducing the value of the dollar, not just of dollars held domestically, but internationally as well. And so it is essentially a way that the Fed can tax the world in order to help pay for those unfunded treasury expenditures. Uh, so the Fed does have that unique power, uh, which a lot of central banks around the world just, just simply don't. They don't have anything like that. Next question comes to us from Timothy Harris, who wants to know a little bit more about the difference between reverse repo and reverse purchasing. Oh, that's a really, really good question. Um, so uh, essentially, when we're talking about the, the repo market, right, these are, these are strictly short-term loans. So this is something that the Fed is doing theoretically just so it can buy time for open market operations to catch up, right? So this is not something that is supposed to go on in perpetuity, right? But the Fed is allowing it to do so in this instance because, again, it's trying to, to square that circle of creating money for the government to spend without causing the, the commensurate inflation. Uh, but, but again, this is short term. This is supposed to be a loan versus those regular open market operations, right, where the opposite of, of the uh, uh, buying securities is going to be selling them. That's the reverse there. And you're simply just allowing that money to be extinguished as it comes back to the Fed, as opposed to sterilized, or if you want to think of it this way, as temporarily extinguished when the Fed decides to hold those funds overnight. Here's a question from Samantha Bullman. I love these devil's advocate questions. Does EJ believe 
that election could upend his thesis that rates will remain high at least in the interim 12 to 18 month period? Great question. Whether I think the, the results of an election could do that? Correct. That's a really, really good question. I, I think part of the reason why Powell decided to, to keep rates way too low for way too long was the fact that he wanted to be reappointed as, as Fed chair. And if he had started hiking rates when the reverse repo market started getting way out of whack, which that should have been the warning sign, right? Wow, we need to get rates up. Because don't forget, reverse repos are just as much a cause as they are an effect here. So when, when reverse repos are spiking like that, it's a signal to the Fed that it's having trouble maintaining a, a floor on interest rates. And so how do, you, uh, how do you get interest rates up? Well, you can either increase demand or you can reduce the supply. And instead of reducing the supply via selling off the, uh, the balance sheet, they decided to do the opposite. They kept buying, which is why reverse repos just go through the roof. Except what did that do? Again, it allowed the Fed to make up for the Treasury's deficit without causing inflation to spike, at least not right away. But even reverse repos could only hold the dam, could only hold the water back in the dam for so long before it started to break. Uh, so I, I think that's a really, really great point that if we do see a, a change of power in the election, or even if we don't, you still have the problem of the president, whether he's a Republican or Democrat, is going to want lower interest rates, not higher rates. So th that is certainly a consideration. We like to think the Fed is apolitical. We like to think it's above the fray. But I think Powell has shown us he's no Volcker and, and he is none of those things. He is not above the fray. He is certainly not apolitical. So here's a, a headline, rate cuts unlikely this year, Powell suggests, downside to not curbing inflation outweigh the short-term pains, Powell says. Uh, talking about that right now, 210 spread, uh, it's upside down, almost 100 basis points, coming in a little bit, I think, at 2 p.m., uh, not really materially, from about 100 bips to, uh, I don't know, call it 90, 97, so two, three, two, three basis points. You know, one of the really interesting things, though, Ash, with, with the yield curve, I, I think people are absolutely right to look at that as, as a recession indicator. But one of the things that's often missed about that is that the yield curve doesn't continue dropping usually into the recession. It actually begins to normalize right. before the recession hits. And it typically returns to parity, actually, before we actually are officially in recession, right? So, Meaning when NBER retroact retrospectively dates it, that's when you see it actually coming back uh, to being normalized and, in fact, positive. Right, right, exactly. So as we continue to, to see that yield curve uh, uh, steepen, as we continue to see things get worse uh, in, in that way, you know, at this point, I don't anticipate the recession is actually going to, to again, officially begin until December at the earliest at this point. So EJ, we've been going now for about an hour. What have we missed? What other points did you want to talk about that you think is important for our listeners and viewers to understand? Well, I, I think one of the things that we often miss right now, because the Fed keeps talking about getting us back down to 2%, and a lot of people in the administration have, have been saying we're trending down towards 2%. By the way, it's not just the administration. There, there are a whole host of conservative economists, if, if you want to call them that, uh, who have been saying the same thing, right? We're trending back down uh, to 2%. I actually just had lunch a few days ago with a uh, chief economist of, of one of the five biggest banks in the country. And, and he thinks we are absolutely trending down towards, towards 2%. And then I showed him one chart and he immediately got worried. And it's the chart that shows the CPI, how if you look at uh, essentially both the Obama and the Trump years together, you have less than a 2% annualized inflation rate. In other words, inflation was more or less not a problem. However, right after Joe Biden gets into office, as a result of the spending, both from his administration, as well as how Donald Trump primed the pump with all the spending under his administration and the purchase of government securities by the Fed in 2020, you see inflation just explode and it's over an 8% annualized rate. That all ends around July of last year, when all of a sudden inflation begins to take a totally different trajectory, in large part because the Fed changes its behavior. But prices have not been rising at an annualized 2% rate, rather a 3% rate. In other words, as the months that are dropping off from that 8.5% annualized period, 
as those become fewer and fewer and fewer, uh, the number is going down and down and down, the number in this case being the annual rate of inflation. But it hasn't been approaching 2%. It's been approaching 3%. And the scary thing is there's no sign going forward that it's going to go down further. In other words, we seem to be stuck here at this 3%. That seems to be the new trend, which actually makes sense, right? From a, At least from a theoretical perspective, that certainly tracks perfectly because government is spending and borrowing and continuing to print so much more money now than they were during those pre-pandemic years. So in a lot of ways, it makes sense that inflation is 50% worse. Yeah, one of the things I really admire about you is there's no red team, blue team. It's just the data are what the data are. And bad decision-making has no party. Right, absolutely. And actually, that is, that is I think, probably the main reason why monetary policy is, is far and away uh, my favorite branch of economics is exactly what you just said. It, money has no political allegiance, right? A dollar bill doesn't care if it's in a Democrat's pocket or a Republican's pocket. And whether the Republican or the Democrat spends that money, it has the exact same economic effects. It has, it has the exact same impact uh, on inflation, on supply and demand. It doesn't matter in any way whatsoever. EJ, this has been a fantastic conversation. Your first time on the Real Vision platform. I have the feeling this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. We'd love to have you back to continue this conversation. Before you go, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our viewers and our listeners with from this conversation. You know, one of the things is that you can never, ever expect to get something out of nothing. And anytime you are promised that, you should immediately uh, you should immediately have your spider sense up, if you want to call it that, because you are being sold a bill of goods. Look, the, the sins of the past always catch up with you, be they moral or monetary. And what we are seeing today is all of those monetary sins catch up to us. And, and we are having to, to pay the price of what we should have paid for in the past. And, and now, as we see, for example, the, the debt ceiling being suspended and Treasury going on what is essentially a, a trillion dollar borrowing spree, the Fed's attempt to keep all of the monsters it created at bay are becoming that much more difficult. And although it's good that the Treasury uh, is not borrowing out of bank deposits, because that would exacerbate the, the bank failures that we saw earlier in the year, instead, where the money is coming from is mostly, it's about 90%, coming from reverse repos. And so you're taking money that was sitting there idle, but sterilized and not expanding the money supply. And now it's going to go out by treasury borrowing and spending it into the private economy. And the result of that is going to be more inflation, which means again, the Fed is gonna to have to slam on the brakes harder. And it never would have had to do this. The Fed never would have had to uh, cause all of the problems it is causing today had it not caused the problems it did starting way back in 2007, 8, 9, when it first went down this, this wrong road of zero interest rates, which it has continued up until just a short while ago. EJ Antoni, fantastic way to end this conversation, marrying the news flow that we got today with the broader, bigger picture and explaining those functional mechanics, talking about the risks, and as well as the opportunities, the investment thesis uh, in U.S. equities and elsewhere. Fantastic conversation. Thank you again for joining us. No, Ash, thank you for having me. Well, we'll have you back really soon. This was a great one. Thank you, sir. I look forward to it. Thank you for watching, everyone. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance.